0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on P.A. Books, Cooper Wingert, author of Slavery and the
0: Underground Railroad in South Central Pennsylvania. Cooper Wingert, author of Slavery and the Underground Railroad in South Central Pennsylvania. There was slavery in Pennsylvania? Yes,
1: and this goes back to the early colonial period in uh, the 1680s when Philadelphia was first founded. A, slip, a ship of uh, carrying 150 African slaves is quickly sold amongst the 2,000 inhabitants of Philadelphia. And as Pennsylvania continues to grow and develop and um, the, the colonial um, occupation spreads further inland west of the Susquehanna River into what we now know as South Central Pennsylvania, uh, slavery slowly but surely comes with it into this region.
0: And when you describe South Central Pennsylvania, can you define it for people who are not the, familiar with it? The,
1: uh, the term I use in this book, uh, the geographical area, would be everywhere west of the Susquehanna River and east of the Blue Ridge Mountains. So that would be um, what we now know as the modern-day counties of Cumberland, Franklin, York, and
0: Adams. And at the time, there was just two counties?
1: At the time, it was Cumberland County and York County.
0: Down to the Maryland border?
1: Down to the Maryland border. Mm-hmm. How populous was it in this era? Uh, very. I mean, uh, a little over 10,000, really, at the, at the time, around 1750, and that's a pretty conservative figure. Uh, but slowly, um, you know, these, these families, you, you have a nuclear family, a man, a wife, his children. Oftentimes, if he were wealthy enough, he would either have indentured servants or he would have slaves. Uh, and, and the typical slave owner at this time in Pennsylvania owned one two slaves usually um we did not have large plantation owners like you have in the south but we still had a form of slavery that was very functional and they would be additions to the core family workforce whereas the sons would do outdoor out- outdoor work so would the slaves uh, the daughters would be doing work inside the house with the wife that was kind of how slavery was born in south central pennsylvania
0: how would one go about acquiring a slave
1: well, at that time, it was perfectly legal in all the 13 colonies, and usually, um, because this area in the 1730s and 40s and 50s was just beginning to be developed and settled, you would, most of the people were coming from Philadelphia westward, so they would probably purchase a slave somewhere along the way, probably in Philadelphia where there were, was a very large market for slaves.
0: How did they keep them from running away?
1: They used various methods, and slaves did run away even as early as you know, the, the um, 1730s and 40s. We have newspaper accounts to verify that. Uh, they would use, obviously, you have those um, collars, which are kind of working irritation devices. Um, you have all sorts of, it was a very um, organized society um, a, in the way that wh- white men throughout Pennsylvania, throughout the 13 colonies, supported one another and if they saw a free black or a black man who was running around they would confront him they would ask for his papers for proof of his freedom and if they weren't satisfied and they could be very unreasonable because they had they had the societal um, okay to uh, harass people of color and and make and try to get into their business they could uh, put them in jail until they could a certain who was their owner. And oftentimes if they couldn't find an owner, the man very well could have been free, they would end up selling him off into slavery.
0: Were there any records you found of, of slaves running away and joining Indian communities?
1: There are no records, but we do know, there, there are no records specifically of that because by the time um, slavery begins to really um, take hold in South Central Pennsylvania, most of the Native American populations have moved west, um, west of the mountains but there are some known cases of, um, of mixed uh, lineage. We have um, several, there's uh, one particular woman who was part African-American, part white, and part Indian. Where did you find documents for this book? Uh, for the first part of the book, which is on slavery, most of the documents come from court records. They come from um, uh, some scant newspaper accounts of runaway slaves, and really it was the struggle of trying to, to tell the story of their lives through a um, very emotionless, very blank court record that describes a name and an age, uh, and then trying to pair that with the story of them running away, which we have, we know because of the newspaper accounts. So it's trying to marry uh, those two concepts and tell the story and paint the picture of what their life was like and why they fled it.
0: Was there anybody who wrote it in terms of
1: biography? Mm-hmm. No, because um, th- th- there's, there only, we only have one surviving account f- actually from the mouth of a Pennsylvania slave, uh, f- from this area of Pennsylvania, I should say, from South Central Pennsylvania, and that was from a woman who was um, you know, alleged to have committed murders, and they were going to hang her. This was her confession, which was taken down by a priest verbally, and who knows how much of her actual sentiment that represents, so we really have no word from the enslaved themselves. You have to piece it together through the court records, through their actions, what we know they did, the steps they took to challenge the laws and to gain their freedom, uh, and really the details we can ascertain of how they lived.
0: How did they live? Like, What was the, life of a, the daily life of a slave like if it's just if the owner has one or two slaves and not? Orange and 20s. that was for the beginning of slavery, it
1: was usually one, one or two slaves. Uh, there were some slave owners, particularly in what we now know as modern-day Franklin County, who owned upwards of a dozen or more slaves. But that normally came on, that didn't occur. start to occur until the 1780s when people were more subtle in this area. And the daily life of a slave was very monotonous, very work-oriented. Uh, they were punished and whipped, just like slaves in the South. Um... Obviously, you have people who were, if you want to call them, it's kind of a contradiction of being a kind slave owner, but there were people who were kind. There were people who were unnecessarily harsh, and they would be um, seventy over 70% of the slaves in this area worked on farms. They were agricultural workers. Uh, Wheat, corn, um, harvest would be likely what they were uh, employed in. There were others who were uh, employed and trained as blacksmiths, there were uh, some who were um, owned by tavern, tavern keepers, and they would be ones receiving guests and um, doing all sorts of odd jobs around a tavern, which was kind of a roadside stop for travelers uh, in the 18th century.
0: Were there more slaves in some areas of the state than others? Was it more?
1: Yes, and this area was the slaveholding capital of Pennsylvania hmm. because there, there were um, by the 1770s in the onset of the Revolution, slavery is by the, by and far dying out in the Philadelphia area, uh, but in this area, because it was settled sl- slightly later, uh, slavery is growing anew, and there are f- this this in just these four counties of Pennsylvania were over sixty percent of the enslaved population in the entire state. Why is that? Well, I think it has to go um, part, partly to time, partly to geography. And the Susquehanna River was not bridged until the 18-teens. So, if you're a farmer and you live in one of those four count what well, we now know as those four counties, uh, it was a very risky proposition to send your goods across the river on a, on a um, flat and hope they, you know, if, if all, all it takes is one mistake in your entire harvest and um, profit and li- livelihood is gone for that year. So a lot of them would take their goods on, f- via wagon to places in the south like Baltimore, uh, Hagerstown, uh, Winchester. So the connections in this area of Pennsylvania were formed more with the south. And that bears out in architecture, it bears out in furniture, and it bears out in the uh, slaveholding customs that people in this region took to where, well, in almost the entire rest of the state of Pennsylvania, there was no slavery. It was non-existent by the time 1780 rolled around. So it really it bears fruit that this area had a lot more um, similarities to the southern, the South, and their trading partners, their uh, inter- intermarrying family ties, than they did to uh, eastern
0: Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia culture. So right across the border from here was Maryland, which was a slave state through the Civil War. Yes. Was was slavery more common on the
1: Maryland side of the line? It was was more common, but the fact is, you know, I kind of look at south-central Pennsylvania uh, as a medley between freedom and slavery. It always was. And you have Maryland, which is a very large, very slave-reliant state. And then you have Pennsylvania, which, other than this little area, is mostly free by the 1780s, 1790s but this area in particular is you know, a complete opposite of the rest of the state. So it was not slave on the level of Maryland, but when you have 60% of all the slaves in Pennsylvania in this little region, uh, I think it bears testimony that you know, the geography and the travel, um, because even though there is, a, there is a boundary and we have a political geographical line, it was still easier to just go over the border to Maryland for a lot of these farmers than to try to Get their goods across the river and through um, the several, um, you know, several hundred miles of country to Philadelphia. Could you buy slaves across state lines? Uh, yes, you could buy slaves, and, and at that point, slave, um, slave, holding and slavery was not very well regulated. If you were to sell a slave, you would take a piece of paper and jot down the name of the the name that you called the slave, not really their given name. Uh, you would jot down your own name, and you would, might have a witness who was standing there, and you'd sign it, and that was a bill of sale.
0: Where you, you said in your book, for a time, most of the slaves in Pennsylvania came from the Caribbean. For, for
1: in the early, early years, when uh, Philadelphia, this is you know, it goes back to about the seventeen teens, seventeen twenties, they, the Quaker merchants in Philadelphia, had a lot of business contacts with. Barbados. There were a lot of, um, I should say, religious contacts as well, because they had converted a lot of the plantation owners in Barbados to be Quakers, and they would trade with them. And oftentimes, if um, they would, they would, they would trade on credit. So the Philadelphians might send down certain things, and in return, they would ask for certain things um, to be sent up from Barbados. And if they, if they felt like they had credit left over. A lot of times the Philadelphia merchants would write the letter and say, send me one of the slaves you no longer need on your plantation. Uh, Slaves who were apparently not useful in the eyes of the plantation owners in the hard tropical um, climate of Barbados. So oftentimes they would get old and elderly slaves. They might get um, a young slave who had some kind of physical deformity that prevented him or her from active field work in the way that the plantation owners would have liked to see. So that's how a lot of the slaves initially came to Pennsylvania because we did not have the tropical climate. We did not have the demand to, you know, the, in other words, the investment would not have been, it would have been so much money for a Pennsylvanian to buy what was seen as a, um, you know, all-around healthy slave, a prime field worker, it wouldn't have been worth the investment for the the fields and the small farms that
0: Pennsylvanians own. Why was... Slavery so less prominent, less common in Pennsylvania than in the South. Really, it it goes to climate, and it's just this:
1: it's the idea that um, we we have we have a much cooler climate. We can't grow those staple crops that um, southern Southern states can uh, in such large numbers, like cotton, for instance. And that's part of the reason um, you know the 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 demand for labor simply wasn't there. And in theory, Pennsylvanians could have chalked up the money and, and bought slaves but they wouldn't, wouldn't have been recompensated in, in the way that southern plantation owners felt they were.
0: You mentioned the Quakers and they were involved in the slave mm-hmm. trade early on, and then they later became leaders of abolitionists. Can you talk about that?
1: It was really a generational shift because the Quakers were, uh, at first, they were the ones, they were the primary um, settlers of the colony, they were the ones, as I said, going back and forth with Barbados, getting slaves, Uh, You have a couple of um, outside voices in the 1730s, primarily. Benjamin Lay was one of them. He was an eccentric man. Um, He would take, in the middle of winter, he would stand out in the snow outside of a meeting house uh, with one leg bare, and the other members would tell him he's going to get pneumonia, and he would then proceed to lecture them about the horrors of slavery and how their slaves were poorly clad in their fields. But he was viewed as kind of an eccentric um, flamboyant person on the fringe of society, and for many years he was. But around the, by the 1750s, um, that thought becomes mainstream, and the sons of a lot of the Quakers have uh, slaveholding Quakers. The sons begin to change positions, and by the 1750s, they've come into power in the Quaker society, and they begin to um, they strongly discourage slaveholding. And it isn't until the 1774 that they actually out, outlawed that you cannot be a Quaker and hold slaves. So it does take a while, but they are the really the first major religious group in America, in the world for that matter, to take such a strong stance against slavery.
0: Were there different ethnic groups that settled Pennsylvania that had different views of slavery?
1: There were, I mean, there were many little, um, you know, I, my book covers west of the river, but there are men, there's a great deal of research that could be done on some of the um, Eastern European ethnic groups that settle in Lancaster, Lebanon counties. Um, some of whom made um, declarations against slavery. However, they do not have the numbers that the Quakers had.
0: What were the groups that settled in South uh, Central most Sweden? of them
1: were uh, they were of German descent. Uh, there was a famous. Um, proclamation done by one one of these groups in the 1680s. But again, that's east of here. Um, my focus for this book was to the west of the river uh, on the, kind of, and the west of the river really doesn't begin to develop until the 1730s and 40s.
0: And Not to defame any particular group, but you say... Um By, I guess, 1822, everywhere else in Pennsylvania, slavery had fallen by the wayside. However, it remained alive and well in Cumberland, Franklin, and York Counties, as you said. Slavery's resilience in Cumberland County can be attributed to several factors, perhaps most significant, that of faith. Whereas parts of Adams and York Counties had strong Quaker presence, Cumberland County was predominantly Presbyterian, and most Presbyterian slaveholders received little, if any, pressure to break connections with slavery.
1: Well, I think it goes, again, and and not not every social movement is done willingly. I mean, you look at the abolition of slavery by Abraham Lincoln. I mean, most of the congressmen didn't do it out of the good of their hearts. A lot of them did it for other reasons, uh, other motives. So I I don't want to defame, as you said, one religious group over another, but you had Quakers. Some Quakers didn't want to give up their slaves. Some Quakers had no moral qualms with it, but they were simply forced to, or they would have been extricated uh, from society. Uh, Then, of course, there were many Quakers who were very genuine and heartfelt about it. And the same goes for the Presbyterians and really many other religious groups. But my point there is that the Presbyterians, there was not that um, organizational pressure to do away with slavery. They did not say, if you don't rid yourself of of owning slaves, we're going to disown you. In fact, Presbyterian churches in Cumberland County actually owned slaves. The parish would own slaves. Um, So... So so that's kind of where I was going with that comment. And it's just the fact of history that, you know, the the Quaker ideology lent itself more earlier to anti-slavery views. And by the time the Civil War rolled around, there were a lot of anti-slavery Presbyterians. And anti-slavery views spanned all sorts of religions, and so did pro-slavery views. Uh, But in particular, in Cumberland County, there was very little pressure, whereas in Adams County, this large group of Quakers were under immense pressure, and you see very little slaveholding in the areas that they were were uh, present in, present in.
0: How did Pennsylvania go about getting rid of slavery? In 1780,
1: so even as slavery is just kind of taking off in south central Pennsylvania, when the state capital is still in Philadelphia, they pass a bill for the gradual abolition of slavery, and what that says is that. Um, you know, abolitionists um, celebrated it as a great success, but in reality, the bill would not free a single slave for 28 years. Not the first slave freed would be in 1808 as a result of that bill. Uh, so it was very slow-moving uh, success.
0: That's more than 30 years after the Declaration of Independence.
1: Yes, more than 30 years after the Declaration, and what what it said was that a none of the slaves who were um, slaves before March 1st, 1780, in the passage of the act. Would be freed. However, their children, anyone born after March 1st, would be free at age 28. And you think the average lifespan of a slave is at that time in history is 30, 40 years? That is the prime of their life. That is the majority of their life, frankly. So it was. And then, of course, the idea was that slavery would die out because their children would not be enslaved, so they would be born free. However, uh, that was not. You know, who was going to tell? the enslaved people of their rights. The slave owners, well that was a fault in the law and that didn't work and a lot of times here in Cumberland County, slaves who were born to the um, the, the, children of the, sla- the children of the slaves who were to be free were enslaved themselves when as they were, whereas they were actually born free.
0: Well, also if you, you would have a, a child of slave parents who would reach age 20, 28 mm-hmm. and if they would be free then they, their parents would still be slaves. Exactly. And there, there were a lot
1: of families that were cut right in the middle. There was one, one woman who had um, a son who was five years old, who was born before the bill in 1778. Then she had a, a, a daughter born a year after. So, you know, one son is a slave for life. She's, well, the, what mother is a slave for life? Her one son is a slave for life, but her one daughter has a distant glimpse of freedom in the future. Uh, so it quite literally tore families apart.
0: Uh, you you say in here that um, when the legislature voted on uh, the gradual abolition, it, uh, Frederick Watts and John Harris, two of Cumberland County's three slave-holding representatives, voted to abolish the institute they took place t- took part in. So why would they have voted to abolish slavery if they were slave owners? Because it didn't affect
1: them, and they and they knew that the, the, you know it wouldn't. I, th- I think they knew that in.
0: Was oh, so far in the
1: future. Yeah, and so far in the future. And frankly, they the slaves they had were slaves for life. So it was a way of doing away with something, yet not having to personally sacrifice. Uh, and of course, yes, they did the right thing. It would have been worse to vote to you know vote against the gradual abolition. But they also you know they still held slaves in bondage, um, and they looked forward to doing so for the rest of their lives. And if those slaves they held had any children, they would have held them for another 28 years.
0: Do you know when the last legal slave was in Pennsylvania?
1: Slavery was officially abolished for good and for all in Pennsylvania in 1847. So that's only 13 years before um, the the South Carolina seceded and the Civil War broke out. So, um, but, but as far as this area, we had slaves up even in the 1840 census there were slaves recorded in Pennsylvania. I believe there were 24 um, in Cumberland County, um, but, but just, so there were there were still slaves in, in
0: 1840. Well, around the time of the Gradual Abolition Act, were there free blacks living in this there, part of There were a number
1: of free blacks, and they were listed in the census. But a lot of them were had somehow gained their freedom uh, through any variety of any you know variety of ways but, but they had family and their wives and sisters or mothers or brothers were still on plantations. So a lot of times you find free blacks living and living and working alongside slaves on plantations because it's hard to just uproot and move somewhere because the rest of the North was not, um, you know, super friendly when it comes to race either. So I think that And again, this goes with the, um, you know, being freed at age 28, a lot of them still stuck around on plantations because they either didn't know they were free or their family were, um, was still uh, in bondage. Could free blacks buy property? Free blacks could, um, but then again, they have to make money. And that was a big problem. You had several free blacks who did become quite successful, but that was more
0: in the antebellum period in the 1840s and 50s leading up to the Civil War. You say in here, um, at the time, uh, interracial marriage was strongly discouraged with the consequence that any free black faced possible enslavement or Mm re-enslavement for marrying a white. Free blacks could not interact with slaves or invite them into their homes unless they had the slave's master's permission. You also say, apart from the Southern colonies, Pennsylvania had no law prohibiting slaves from learning to read or write. And Pennsylvania would be the first home to the first legislative abolition of racial slavery in world history.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The gradual abolition. That was, the, f- was,
1: that was the first legislative because um, Vermont would do it through a constitution. They, when they wrote their constitution, they outlawed slavery. That's a constitutional you know, abolition. Massachusetts was done by a judicial ruling which was an interpretation of the wording in the Massachusetts Constitution. We were the first state or government anywhere in the world to pass legislation through a legislative body to abolish it.
0: When you were doing your research, did you come across ads or newspaper notifications about runaway slaves?
1: There were dozens of them for this area, and you can look in uh, the Carlisle papers. I mean, Papers were somewhat of a rare thing west of the river, but Carlisle, by 1785, had a paper. They have, even in their first issue, slave ads, um, advertisements for uh, slave owners from the Carlisle area who wanted to sell their slaves. Um, Then you have York had uh, two papers, actually. Um, Gettysburg, when that is founded around 1800, has a paper called the Adams Sentinel. That has a number of slave ads, runaway ads, and so does Franklin County and Chambersburg, uh, and even Mercer'sburg had a paper for a brief time, and they have um, advertisements there as well.
0: If there was a runaway slave and somebody thought that's oh that's the runaway slave, how could they identify them? I mean, no photographs and yeah, sort of physical description. It was physical
1: description, and that was a big problem. Is especially what happened um, with the onset of the eighteen early 1800s, 18-teens, is a lot of Southerners when their slaves would run away into Pennsylvania would uh, send either, um, would either come up themselves or send a hired agent and they might just find a random African-American person on the street and grab him and take him and um, go back south with him. So there were actually, there were some laws in the 1820s in Pennsylvania for the protection of free black residents. Because by that time, slavery was on its way out, even in this area. Uh, but it still did exist. And primarily those laws said, and obviously not every slave catcher followed the laws, but by law you were, you were to go with an signed affidavit of the physical description of your slave from the county in the south where you were from. So if you were from, um, you know, a county in Virginia, it would have to be from a judge in that county of Virginia signed. You would present it before a, a justice of the peace in Pennsylvania, like someone in Adams County, and he would examine the physical description. He would look at the man they had before him and he would decide if the slave matched the physical description. And there were no requirements of what the physical description had to say, it could just say a black man, five feet nine. And, well, there's a lot of people who fit that description. So it was still, it was a very uh, weak protection, but it was put in place. And obviously, if you're a black man and they kidnap you and throw you in the back of a wagon, as they often did, and try to run off to the South uh, and uh, put you into enslavement, you know, who are you going to cry on for help? Because a lot of times, um, you know, you had sympathetic abolitionists living in this area, but then again, you had a lot of people who still own slaves in Pennsylvania or who had previously owned slaves and they're probably not going to help you even if you're, even if the people who are taking you captive are breaking the law. So free blacks tend to, be, tend to begin to move in um, and, and around abolitionist communities. And you begin to see that where most free blacks locate themselves are very near Quaker communities in Adams County um, because they knew that they had good friends and good neighbors who they could trust and if they disappeared all of a sudden, the neighbors wouldn't forget them. They would actively look for them, and that happened.
0: Did free blacks have to carry papers with them?
1: Yes, uh, and they they did. And of course, a lot of them were not literate. A lot um, education was very, uh, even among the white population, was was very sketchy in this area at that time. And they did carry papers, but then again, you know, it was one of those things where. Uh, if, if somebody who had stopped you and confronted you on the street wasn't satisfied with those papers, they could still take you to the local jail. They
0: could also take away your papers. They could also take away them. your papers, it seems exactly. It's like a fragile thing. It, it,
1: it, ver- it very much is. And, and uh, In the book, I have a photo of one man's papers that did survive, and that's actually a, a note from his former slave owner uh, who freed him. So, I mean, they came in all sorts of sh- shapes and sizes.
0: Uh, you say here Gettysburg in particular had become a hot spot for fugitive slaves freeing anywhere from the Carolinas to Virginia to neighboring Maryland. Why, why Gettysburg?
1: Gettysburg because of location, uh, but also because of some of the people who were there. Particularly, the Quakers were not in Gettysburg itself, but they were a little bit to the north in what what is a uh, it's a stretch of northern Adams County called Quaker Valley. It's near the Bendersville, Biglerville area in Adams County. That was kind of the stop after Gettysburg. But Gettysburg in particular had um, a young lawyer from Vermont named Thaddeus Stevens who came there in around 1817 and he set up a law office and early on he was involved in a case where he represented a slave owner who wanted to to, uh, reclaim a slave woman and he won the case for the slave owner and some have speculated that that may have been a moral epiphany for Thaddeus Stevens and after that he was a pretty dedicated warrior for anti-slavery and abolition. Uh, he really rigged Gettysburg in a way that, um, that was set up. It, he, he, by the time he left Gettysburg, he was a state representative throughout the 1820s and 1830s. By the time he left there and moved to Lancaster, it was set up as a functioning underground railroad facility, and it actually is the only um, physical underground railroad or below-surface railroad in the country because Thaddeus Stevens, a state representative, commissioned the building of the famous tapeworm railroad cut that goes from his ironworks, which is Caledonia State Park now, on the western edge of Adams County, all the way into Gettysburg. Well, the track was never laid, but this huge cut, uh, you know, huge railroad cut, was present. It was very easy to follow, Um, and a lot of times runaway slaves would be led to Thaddeus Stevens ironworks, Caledonia ironworks, and from there at night, they would usually be guided along this railway cut into town uh, to Pensil- which led right to Pennsylvania College, what we now know as Gettysburg College. Um, Thaddeus Stevens sat on the board of Pennsylvania College, and he had it arranged that um, you know there was a, a janitor by the name of Jack Hopkins who was um, in the employ of Pennsylvania College, who was an avid worker on the Underground Railroad. So in this way, uh, it was conducted from. Thaddeus Stevens ironworks to the college where he had very much um, a a great deal of influence and he had people working there particularly Jack Hopkins who would take care of runaway slaves he added some insurance though he was also on the board of the only bank in Gettysburg and most people in that day had their farms were depending on mortgages with the bank and he had it written into the contracts that um, the mortgage could be called at the discretion of the bank so if you were to report If you were to report a fugitive slave, you were to report, oh, there's underground railroad activity, um, he could call in the mortgage on your farm. So he, he sat on a number of boards in town, and he understood how power and politics work. And some people might say it's unethical, but he did it to the purpose he wanted, which was to aid the underground railroad. And it made Gettysburg, even after he left, that system still functioned because he remained on the boards of those organizations.
0: Now, your book, uh, Slavery and the Underground Railroad, uh, the words slavery is, is smaller, and Underground Railroad is real big, and we haven't talked about the mm-hmm. Underground Railroad much yet, and I want to talk mm-hmm. about that, but I want to ask you about yourself first a little bit. You have been on this program before. Mm-hmm. Uh, what number of book is this? Uh, this is the 10th book. Uh, how old were you when you wrote your first book?
1: I was 12. Was it published? Mm, uh, uh, that was locally published. When I was 14, my my first one was nationally published.
0: Um, how did you come to be a historian at age 14?
1: Well, it, it was um, I went to, a, uh, went to Gettysburg on a fifth grade field trip. And ever since then, I had uh, started doing research on my own uh, in local archives, uh, diaries and letters and uh, all sorts of manuscripts. And then eventually I started t- to learn about the history of the area I've lived in, which is the greater Harrisburg area about 30 minutes north of Gettysburg. And I saw some of the Confederate, you know, the Confederate accounts of uh, coming within two miles of Harrisburg, Union soldiers, civilian accounts. And I compiled these, and eventually I realized I had enough material for a book, and that's kind of how it evolved. Uh, I didn't set out to write a book, but that's how um, it eventually came together. How old are you now? I'm 18. And where are you in your education? I'm a freshman at Dickinson College.
0: Studying what? Uh, History and anthropology. Do you want to just keep on doing this, writing history books? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you write a book?
1: Well, I, I think first you have to know what you're writing about, and I try to get to know my topic. Usually, I do the research first, and uh, I try to I try to find a topic that is um, something that hasn't been covered. Like this, for instance, kind of the way this book started, for instance, was I. Um, a friend of mine who owns a very large private collection with fabulous, um, you know, artifacts and documents of the Underground Railroad in this area and the anti-slavery movement. Um, many of them had not been published before; had kind of, you know, um, were, were kind of these unseen and unspoken um, pieces of history that I really thought thought ought to be um, a story that really ought to be told, and. I at the same time had had a very strong interest for some time in slavery in Pennsylvania and I knew that it existed but I just like most people I never knew how much what to what extent so I thought it would be a great idea uh, to marry the concepts of when this area was a slaveholding region to when it was a region of the underground railroad and of course they that that overlapped quite a bit but there were were distinct differences and this area has such a rich history in both aspects um, so that was kind of how I came to write this book, and I did the research um, first. I, I had notes and, and research, and then usually after that, after you've thoroughly examined the topic, after you've let it float around in your head and um, really sink in, is when you begin to write things. And um, so, so I do the research first, and then really sit down to try to write it. Do you like the research, or is that? A, I, I enjoy the research, but I definitely enjoy the writing most because it's very rewarding when you're synthesizing everything.
0: If someone was to watch you write for a day, what would they see? Um,
1: I, I, I really, usually it's in a very sh- short increments. Uh, I try not to write myself out. You kind of have, it's like a, uh, a well and, and you don't want to empty it. You want it to still be full full at the, the time you stop writing uh, so you can pick up where you left off. And, and, and you have to you have to let it refill. So I, I try to. Um, when I was doing this book, for instance, I tried to write about a thousand words a day, and I would. Some days I might write 700, other days I might write 3,000. So it, it, it compensated. It, it did. But when you have a, a set goal and you and you write what you can on a, on a specific topic in the book, it usually comes about fairly easily.
0: Just for reference, about how many words would be in a book like? In this
1: book, I believe there are about uh... my word count was forty thousand but i went to fifty thousand
0: how do you know when it's done
1: well usually usually you have to bring it to a good conclusion that's what i try to do here um, when you have when you have told the story the way it deserves to be told in all its aspects and you can wrap it up
0: how
1: once it's published do you go back and read it occasionally yeah because a lot of times i'm asked to do presentations and if my memory is a little faulty, I do co- go back and read excerpts, but I don't read it from cover to back. Uh, because I, w- once it was done in a manuscript, I read it over voraciously from cover to, to end that I memorize some parts verbatim in my mind. So a- after it's done, and you, you, almost, you almost can't because as a writer, you're always going to find fault in something and if i look at it right now and i read a chapter i would find a word that i would change and i can't because it's in print already
0: at, at any given moment how many book ideas do you have floating around
1: some days i have 3 or 4 and i just i try to write them down of course the biggest the biggest problem is getting an idea and sticking to it i can't i can't tell you how many times i've i've done the research and i have a book started um, i have my computer is filled with manuscripts that are 10 15,000 words written and uh, then, I get on another idea. This one was helped was um, helped along because I had a contract, and I had a deadline so this one was uh, gave me extra impetus to finish it through.
0: How much of your time do you spend writing now that you 're a college student
1: I, tr- I, I try to get in um, several hours a day and sometimes sometimes i can 't uh, but I, I really try to it's um, it 's very good um, it 's good for your mind it 's a good exercise. Um, and I really enjoy it. So I do try to get as, th- usually I try to do two to three hours a day when I can.
0: No, You said you give talks on these mm-hmm. sometimes. And when you were 14, 15, 16 years old, were you treated like a novelty? Oh, here's this 14-year-old kid who wrote a book about the Civil War. And at some point, did that change to you being considered a real historian? I think it was kind of a mix.
1: And um, ultimately, I can't say what other people thought, but I, I do know there were there were some people who who did see me as a novelty. There were other people who um, I think genuinely appreciated it. And you can tell when people, the way people ask you questions, if they ask you questions about his specific historical things, you know that they respect the, the integrity and the history of your work. So you, you were able to tell.
0: Well, let's get back to your book mm-hmm. um, and the Underground Railroad part of it. When was there something that you might, call an Underground Railroad in, in this part of Pennsylvania. This,
1: it be, it, we really can't put a start date on it. It would have been um, operational going back to the 1750s when this area was very sparsely pro- populated. But by the time the 18, um, 1805 is really when runaway advertisements placed by southern slaveholders, that's the difference, not local runaways, began to pick up. And that's when more and more slaves are taking flight and fleeing from the South through uh, Maryland or from Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and there are, again, it's geography, what made it a slaveholding region makes it underground railroad region because most runaway um, slaves are not going to cross the Appalachian Mountains on their own. They're also not going to try to cross the Susquehanna River because a lot of people, white and black at that time, uh, do not know how to swim. So they're kind of funneled by geography into these four counties. And when you're in these four counties, these are the first four counties that any slaveholder is going to look for you. So it's very dangerous. And even though there was a great deal of underground railroad networking here, it was very dangerous for both the enslaved and the uh, people who were concealing them because they could be fined, and they were at times fined, and if they were caught, fined uh, and threatened with imprisonment themselves. So... You were kind of, in, when you got in this area, it was a mad dash to get either across the river at Wrightsville and into the Columbia-Lancaster area or further north across the river at Harrisburg. And there you would find a large free black community where you could kind of blend in.
0: Can you describe the, the geography? Because you're, if you're around the central mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, you hear the phrase Cumberland Valley all the time. What does that C- refer Cumberland to? Cumberland Valley
1: is, if you, if you look at a map with the counties, it is essentially Cumberland County and Franklin County. And that is going up, it goes down into Maryland, and it continues as what we know as the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. So if you go north down the Shenandoah Valley, cross the Potomac River into Maryland, and you're staying between the mountains, uh, what we're talking the Appalachian Mountain and the South Mountain, and then you cross uh, into Chambersburg. So the, there, there's the Great Valley Road, which is part of the Cumberland Valley, Route 11 as we know it. Uh, it was the road that when the Confederates invaded Pennsylvania, they marched up. It's been a road, you know, since the 18th century. And that goes through Chambersburg, Shippensburg, and Carlisle, and ends here in Harrisburg. Ends here on the west shore, opposite Harrisburg. So it, that kind of follows the contours of the very base of the valley. Um, but but uh, the South Central Pennsylvania, as I define it, also includes the area south of the South Mountain, which is York and Adams counties, uh, because there were uh, a, a great deal of slavery and underground railroad networking in those two counties as well.
0: If you were a slave in the South and you escaped and headed north, how would you have known where to go? You,
1: you, on, 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 most often, you would not. And we, we are um, given the story of Harriet Tubman, and very rarely did that happen. Uh, I'll give you the instance of uh, James Pennington, who was a slave on the eastern shore of Maryland. And uh, he ran away at, uh, in his 20s, and he he did not know anyone he did not know anyone anywhere he just knew that he knew that if he got to Pennsylvania eventually he would find freedom but he didn't know what direction Pennsylvania was he didn't know you know northeast southwest he ends up going in the direction of baltimore which is you know a major slave market until eventually by really by sheer luck he's put back on the right path and then he is captured by uh, several people on several different occasions he's holed up in a tavern uh, but he uses his ingenuity and he tells them that he came from a uh, a gang of slaves who recently had smallpox and the people start to leave him alone he makes his escape so really I mean it was very much if you tripped that could be the difference between freedom and slavery for the rest of your life because you had a lot of people in this borderland Northern Maryland and um, and southern Pennsylvania who were in the business of looking for people, because uh, looking for a black person who was walking along the road and grabbing him and selling him into slavery. Uh, some of them would be interested in returning you to your owner for the reward. Others would just take you and sell you further down south for money, what they thought they could get. So this, this was a business in this area. It was uh, attended to by a lot of people on the border, and you really had to be very lucky very smart. Uh, you'd be able to think on your feet to have a chance. Not not even there was really no sure success. And if you made it into South Central Pennsylvania, you had to be very lucky to find an actual underground railroad house.
0: Were there Pennsylvanians who were involved in the slave
1: catching? There were business? many Pennsylvanians. There were there were some who lived uh, lived in this area actually, uh, who were quite notorious for um, being um, slave catchers who were who were literally their business was they would go out look for um, people of color walking the roadways whether they were free or slave they didn't care they would um, take you hostage take you captive and if again it was it was kind of a um, depending on the person some of them would look for advertisements and return you to your owner for money others would just sell you to somebody else for um, an amount.
0: So if you were a runaway slave and you headed north and you got into Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. how would you know if you were going to knock on a Quaker's door or a slave you, catcher's
1: you door? You very rarely did. And um, like for Pennington, he, was very, he got um, captured. He escaped. Eventually, he ends up um, running into a woman who was running a toll booth, and she directs him to the house of William Wright, who was a Quaker abolitionist and underground railroad um, conductor in northern Adams County. And that was really by sheer luck. He was about at the point of starvation. He was um, getting lightheaded. He really couldn't have continued much farther, and he easily could have fallen into the wrong hands. So he he was he was very lucky. But then again, earlier on, he had he had used his brain to get himself out of uh, what was going to be surely you know um, a future captivity.
0: Was there any communication that went back and forth? Would would uh, any? slave community have heard the word that, oh, this is where to head, look it, for it's,
1: William Wright? There were some, but then again, it was it was kind of hard because once you've escaped, you can't go back south. You know, Harriet Tubman is really the exception there. Um, not many people that we know of ever did that. Um, so so it's kind of hard to get word back. Uh, occasionally, a, a, a sympathetic white person might, who was visiting on a plantation in Virginia, might say something like, you know, if you want to make an escape, but then again, they, slave owners in the South particularly limited contact of outside white visitors, particularly northern visitors, with their slaves because of that reason. They didn't want uh, to leave a slave and a northern abolitionist alone because the abolitionist would say, "Go here, go to this person's house." So, so that was really limited, and it was it's very, it's very the accounts we have of slaves who ran away in South Central Pennsylvania. Uh, almost all of them just say they were going north and they were hoping for the best. And they, they, a lot of them were lucky enough to encounter um, networks of the Underground Railroad. And, and like the, the, way the, the way the Underground Railroad worked was it was not this you know, very clearly delineated, here's one house, here's stop two, stop three. Uh, it was more of clustered communities. Um, these abolitionists and free blacks cocooned themselves in in kind of this network of friendship and trust. So I'll give you the example of southeast of Gettysburg on the Baltimore Pike, which was a major roadway where runaway slaves would be coming from eastern Maryland, from the Baltimore area, up uh, to 97, Route 97 in, in uh, today's um, talk. Uh, they'd be coming up 97, and southeast of Gettysburg, you had the Wurts, you had the Heutelands, you had the McAllisters, and they were all abolitionist families. So the first house you would pass if you were a... Uh, runaway slave would be the Wirts. and they might see you and the father and son team of Jay Howard and Adam Wirt would come out and escort you from there to the McAllister mill um, there was one instance where J Howard Wirt uh, is 10 years old and he's driving uh, a very frightened slave boy in a carriage and the slave catchers are within um, you know sight behind them chasing them on the Baltimore Pike So this was kind of how it worked, and it was, if you were an underground railroad conductor, you never knew what hour of the night uh, or what day, you know, what time in the middle of the day you'd be kind of called on to
0: perform your services. Did you find that the people who were the prominent abolitionists were also... The conductors or had safe houses on the Underground Railroad? Or, or if they were prominent abolitionists, was it too risky to be involved? See, see the thing,
1: and I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because there is a dis- distinction that should be made. An abolitionist was somebody who advocates in the public eye, whereas a Underground Railroad conductor, as we consider them, are people who were doing things covertly uh, against the law at the time. It was illegal to harbor fugitive slaves. Uh, but a lot of them doubled the doubled up and a lot of the people who were the abolitionists of Adams County the ones who signed their names to the anti-slavery proclamations in Gettysburg in the 1830s were the same people we do know for a fact were underground railroad conductors mm-hmm. it was risky but then again most people would figure out it was it was a very rural society everyone most people knew most people and you would know if You know, if you were living in Adams County in the northern part, you would know William Wright was a Quaker who was a very big Underground Railroad conductor. The word got around. So people who were
0: not involved in the Underground Railroad might have known where the people would people generally knew
1: because slave catchers like for William Wright, who he was probably the most prolific in this area, slave catchers routinely just showed up at his house because they knew he was a um, a major player in the Underground Railroad but he had adapted to that. He actually moved from his house and he built a whole new house that is probably one of the only houses, if not the only constructed specifically to be an underground railroad house. There are so many doors and windows on the house. Uh, There are doors from the upstairs leading down on a uh, outdoor stairway to the ground. Uh, The the windows on the basement are big enough that you could lift them up and climb out. So it was a house made for many getaways. Still standing? Uh, it it is, but it's on private property. Uh, but, but, uh, it's kind of one of those things that'd be like a, um, a fire code's best friend. There are, there are the most, so many exits on this house. And that was one example of William Wright being able to, uh, even if, and he had a kind of a isolated location. He had a long driveway. So anyone approaching could be seen from a far, you know, you know, enough time that they could prepare and hide the people before the slave catchers came.
0: Are there examples or, or sites, historic sites, or houses or buildings that are open to the public that you can go and look at and say, there, oh, well, this is where they hid?
1: There is the uh, William Goodridge House, which is in York, and he was a free black man. He was a businessman, uh, very wealthy, and at his house he was um, he was involved in anti-slavery and underground railroad activities, so that that is actually just newly opened. Um, other, otherwise, there aren't there aren't many that are openly, you know, identified as Underground Railroad that are, that are open to visit, but there are a lot of sites in Gettysburg that are associated with a national park that were part of the Underground Railroad. And they may not be explicitly identified as that by the park, but they were still part, uh, they were used, and once you read the book, you can, you know, go there and give yourself a, um, you know, a self-guided orientation of those sites.
0: When a, a slave would escape from the South and get, Connected to the Underground Railroad around Gettysburg and central Pennsylvania, mm. would they stick around this area, or, or would it they varied a lot.
1: A lot of times they might um, they might stay. They might find a, a family that was uh, they liked and would work. And there were, there were a number of cases of that. Uh, a lot of times they would live um, for the sake of avoiding slave catchers. They would live in um, isolated homes and cabins in the mountains, and they would come down to work on a abolitionist's Farm and he would pay them like he would pay the white white farm workers. Uh, there, but for the most part, like I'll, I'll use the example of, um, of of James Pennington again, the the slave from Eastern Maryland. He stayed for six months with the rights He learned how to write, read and write, and then he left because it was so dangerous. because once you got across the river, the Susquehanna River, you were relatively more secure. And he went on to become a um, the first black graduate of Yale College. So he went on to great things up in New England. But for the most part, they least got east of the river. Some of them stayed in Harrisburg. Some of them stayed in Philadelphia. Some of them went even to Canada. Um, But most of them left this area because this was such... It was a little bit prohibitive for a slave catcher to cross the river. And they would not go to Harrisburg. They would also not go to areas where there was a a large black population. Uh, But in this area, these four counties, slave catchers operated... Fairly
0: um, frequently. Was the, there a big colonization movement around here, and did that fit in with what the Quakers were looking for, or was that kind of at odds with Quakers? Beliefs? So, so colonization, uh, for those viewers who aren't familiar, is was the
1: was the movement to send to free slaves gradually and send them back to Africa, and there were some colonization societies in Carlisle. Uh, we know of one. But they were we, we seldom hear from them. They weren't as quite as active as some of the anti-slavery groups, and Quakers, by and large, did not never really, never quite bought into it in the way that um, some people on the national stage, like Henry Clay, uh, and James Monroe, uh, supported it.
0: I meant to ask you uh, you you mentioned Harriet Tubman twice, and for people who are not familiar with what she did, what did she do? Harriet
1: Tubman was famous for, uh, she,
0: she escaped slavery and she returned uh,
1: several times uh, making the journey to lead others uh, away um,
0: back from the area she
1: knew to freedom.
0: Earning a place on the $20 bill. Mm-hmm. You also write that uh, John Brown, of John Brown's uh, raid on Harper's Ferry, as he plotted his slave uprising at Harper's Ferry, Brown initially made his headquarters in a Chambersburg home under the, the comfort of an alias. And after the raid, the editors of the Valley Spirit, Chambersburg's Democratic paper, were astonished that these men lived among us for months, transacted business through our bank and warehouses, and kept up an extensive correspondence through our post office, using the telegraph occasionally, and yet no one suspected their real character or designs.
1: Mm-hmm. And, that, and even the Republican paper, and at that time the Republican Party was the, part, you know, the party of Lincoln, they were aboli- uh, in the favor of abolition, uh, whereas the Democratic Party was not. And even the Republican paper, which was an anti-slavery party, condemned John Brown, an abolitionist, and they were horrified that John Brown was here in Chambersburg. Now today, uh, there are still mixed opinions on John Brown. Some people call him America's first terrorist. Some people call him a martyr. But people are somewhat proud that John Brown was in Chambersburg, and that's the difference of 150 years makes. And, uh, but, but it gives you an idea of how society, by and large, rejected abolitionists. Um, and they were for many years, even right up until the cusp of the Civil War, at the fringe of society. They were not quite fully a 15-20 percent of the electorate.
0: I also learned from your book that Roger Taney, who was the Chief Justice mm-hmm. of the Supreme Court for the Dred Scott decision, was a graduate of your college, Dickinson College. Yes, and he was
1: um, there was, I, I was able to find some of the early notebooks of the society, some Arguments that he had made back in the 1790s as a student about slavery.
0: What was his view then?
1: Uh, his view was relatively the same. He was um, he believed it was justified.
0: I also have to quote um, another uh, representative from your school, a uh, Scotsman, Charles Nisbet, the first president of Dickinson College, mm-hmm. cried that. Ignorance and an aversion to labor on the part of many settlers proved a dead weight on all schemes of improvement. He was not a big fan of the settlers around. uh, He he was not, and and
1: and and the same thing with Benjamin Rush, who was the founder of Dickinson. They would uh, make journeys into Carlisle, but when they looked at the country, because this was you know very much countryside, um, and Carlisle was kind of like the it was kind of like the oasis of civilization. They viewed it as the Philadelphia of the West, and. Um, that's why Rush founded the college in Carlisle. And when he would travel you know, across um, eastern Cumberland County to get to Carlisle, he was, Rush was someone who was very big in the temperance movement. He would look at some of the farms and see stills all all across the farms of eastern Cumberland County and it disgusted him. And Charles Nisbet, who was, uh, he hired as the first president of Dickinson, was of the same
0: vein. Now you said this is book number 10? Mm-hmm. And you also said you have fragments of books that you've started on. Do you think mm-hmm. book number 11 will be one of those, or do you have your eye on something else? I do. I, I have my eye on something else. Um, I actually have on several ideas,
1: so I have to see which one will come to fruition as a final book form. And do you like this length of book? I do. I, I, I don't know what... Really, I, I, um, this one I kind of knew would be about this length. I, that's why I, I told the publisher, and that was what it was agreed upon, and Um, so I wrote it to be this length. But I I certainly could write something that was longer. It depends on the topic and how much there is to, to say about it.
0: Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Cooper Wingert. He is the author of this book, Slavery and the Underground Railroad in South Central Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about P.A. Books.